Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Well, today's a special day for our regular listeners. You know, on Tuesday on the Employment Matters podcast, we call that Travel Tuesday. Each week, we get the chance to dial in our members from all around the world, and they share with us some of the important things that we need to know about doing business in their jurisdiction. Today, we're going to be learning about doing business in Malaysia. I'm pleased to welcome to the show Vijayan Venagopal, a partner at Shern Delamore & Company. Vijayan, I'm excited to hear about today's conversation. So let's get started. Share with our audience something about a general overview of Malaysia, the economy, the population, maybe some of the things about the government structure and so on. Would you do that, please? Certainly, Peter. Malaysia is located in a very interesting part of the world. We're extremely close to the equator. And geographically, Malaysia consists of two main components. West Malaysia, which is the peninsula, the piece of land between Thailand and Singapore. So directly above West Malaysia is Thailand, and directly below is Singapore. The second component of Malaysia is called East Malaysia, which is comprised of two states on the island of Borneo. The two states are Sabah and Sarawak. In terms of geographical size, those two states are actually larger than the whole of Peninsular Malaysia, but Peninsular Malaysia tends to be the financial hub of the country. So these states actually came together as a confederacy and became Malaysia. We were formerly a British colony, much like Singapore, India, etc. We obtained our independence in 1957 and have been an independent country ever since. Malaysia is a multicultural country. The main race would be Malays who are the indigenous people of Malaysia, but we also have a large component of Chinese and Indians. The reason being that we are a former British colony. So during the British colonial times, many people came to Malaysia from other jurisdictions and stayed on in our beautiful country. Because we're a multicultural country, the official language of Malaysia is still Malay, and we're officially a Muslim country. But because we're a multicultural country, we actually have freedom of religion. So Islam is the official religion of the country, but people are allowed to practice whatever religion they want to. So it's extremely common to find churches, temples, and all other denominations. And you could find almost anything in Malaysia, a Taoist temple, Orthodox church, almost anything is available in Malaysia. So it's a very peaceful country as well. Generally, we don't have any riots or anything like that. We're generally a fairly peaceful country. At most, maybe the odd demonstration. In terms of government, I would say we were extremely stable. We're part of the Commonwealth. And like Singapore, we were at one point the only two countries in the Commonwealth that had the same government since independent. That changed a few years ago when a new government was voted into power. Since then, we've actually had several governments that have come and gone into power. And our current prime minister is Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim. So we're hopeful that with the new government, we'll have some changes and things will move to a positive side. So that's a little bit about Malaysia, just as an overview in terms of where we're located, etc. In terms of population, the population is not particularly large. We're about 33.5 million people. The reason I say not particularly large, you have to remember our geographical size is comparable to the United Kingdom, which is a population of more than double that. And bearing in mind that generally populations in Asia tend to be a lot larger than in Europe, 33.5 million for our geographical size would not be considered large at all. 
by comparison, our neighbors, uh, Singapore, which has got tiny geographical size, has a population of 6 million and one of the highest population densities in the world. Indonesia, who's our other neighbor, has a population of 270 million. So you can sort of imagine that in terms of population, we're not particularly large. As I mentioned earlier about language, Malay is the official language of the country. And in fact, in terms of court documents, everything has to be filed in Malay. Parties are at liberty, in fact, to file English translations, and we usually do, but the official documents are always filed in Malay. Having said that, the courts are extremely tolerant, and in most instances, arguments would be conducted in English, particularly at the higher levels. In fact, just yesterday, I was arguing an appeal at the Court of Appeal, and although all the court papers were filed in Malay, the entire arguments were conducted in English. So the judges are very tolerant of the English language and it's commonly used in Malaysia. In fact, any tourist coming to Malaysia would have absolutely no trouble getting around with English. Even if they did not understand Malay, it wouldn't be a problem at all. In fact, Malay, although it's a distinct language from English, uses the English alphabet. There is no alphabet for the Malay language. So even if one of our ELA members was to come and visit Malaysia on a holiday or come here for business, and they decided to go around, they'd be able to locate where they were, they'd be able to read street signs, etc., even in the local language. Well, that's fantastic. And I know as ELA members, we travel the globe, and a lot of places I've gone to, I haven't been able to read the signs. So that's a pleasant understanding. But also just the, the way that the country seems to be set up in terms of open to all kinds of cultures and all kinds of religions. Let's talk about industries, because clearly a lot of our listeners are thinking about foreign investment and what would bring them to Malaysia. What are some of the key industries in Malaysia that we should know about? I would say that the key industry in Malaysia would probably be oil and gas. We are actually an oil-producing country, and there is a company called Petronas, that is P-E-T-R-O-N-A-S. It's actually the national oil company, it is actually, I think, one of the, the biggest companies in the world. If I remember correctly, I think it's number 69 in the world or something like that. So it's a huge company. It actually manages the oil resources of Malaysia. Since then, in fact, they've actually expanded into other jurisdictions. Petronas now has got oil and gas industries in Mexico, in Africa, in Europe. I know this because I'm actually quite well acquainted with Petronas. They're my clients and I do many of their labor matters. So oil and gas would probably be the largest industry. The other main industry would also be agriculture. Our main product would be palm oil. In the past, Malaysia was known for rubber and tin. During the Second World War, we were of strategic importance because we were the world's largest producer of rubber, which was important. Subsequently, as time has gone on, the importance of rubber dwindled. And Malaysia's importance as a rubber-producing country is consequently eroded. We then were one of the main producers of tin, but a tin being a commodity depends very much on the price. So right now, our main agricultural product would be palm oil, and we are one of the largest producers of palm oil in the world. Interesting. Well, let's talk about doing business there. You know, we want to understand when companies come from the U.S. or Europe or Asia or other parts of the world where they come to Malaysia to tap into some of those resources. What are some of the things we need to know about when we're employing locally in Malaysia? Do you have works councils? Do unions make a play? What kind of federal regulations are that we need to know about? Give us an overview of that, if you would. Certainly. Malaysia is extremely friendly towards foreign investment. Like most Asian countries, we try to attract 
foreign investment. In fact, we're competing with countries like Thailand, Singapore, Indonesia for foreign investment. So Malaysia makes it very easy to set up a business here. In fact, it's even quite easy to obtain work permits for foreign nationals to come to Malaysia and set up businesses. Tax exemption status is granted for limited times, depending on the industry. In fact, Malaysia even encourages people to consider staying on in Malaysia. They've introduced a Malaysia My Second Home program for retirees who want to come here. So even if people come up and set up businesses and they decide to stay on in Malaysia, that's possible. You know, they don't come to set up business, but they want to retire here. That's also possible. In terms of setting up a company in Malaysia, as I mentioned earlier, extremely easy. You just set up a company. Like most jurisdictions, it's a fairly straightforward process. We follow the Australian Companies Act. So it's basically a memorandum and articles of association. If you don't have one specifically, there are standard memorandum and articles of association that you can use. The only thing that people should be aware of is there is a requirement for two local directors. But beyond that, it's extremely easy to set up a company. Now, in terms of hiring locals, that can also be done quite easy. Hiring people in Malaysia, there are absolutely no restrictions. This is going to sound very, very surprising, particularly for some of our ELA members from other jurisdictions. But we do not have a Race Discrimination Act. We do not have a Sex Discrimination Act. We do not have a Gender Discrimination Act. So because of that, during the interview process, you can literally ask any questions you want. So it's quite common, in fact, for people to have to fill in their religion on an employment application form, their race on an employment application form. I've actually had known of interviews where women are asked, uh, are you pregnant? Do you intend to get pregnant in the next couple of months because we've got an important deadline? Now, this would be seen as absolutely abhorrent in Europe and most other civilized jurisdictions. But in Malaysia, it's perfectly fine. In fact, in Malaysia, you could even go further. You can actually put an advertisement in the newspaper to say, Chinese sales girl wanted between the ages of 25 and 30. Perfectly lawful. Now, of course, if you're a foreign company, you wouldn't want to do this because can you imagine if that newspaper cutting was then sent to your headquarters in Europe or in the US? It would not go down well. But having said that, perfectly lawful in Malaysia. You can actually make those specifications because, as I said, there's no Gender Discrimination Act, no Race Discrimination Act, no Age Discrimination Act, etc. Now, sometimes people are a bit more subtle about the way they do it. So, for example, they may put an advert and say, Mandarin speaking an advantage. Now, one could read between the lines, but again, perfectly lawful. But you could actually specify race, etc. And you can ask any questions in the interview process. Once you hire a person, getting rid of them is a lot more problematic because Malaysia does practice protection for employees. Anyone who's employed, who is dismissed, has a statutory right to file a complaint for unfair dismissal before what we call the industrial court. Essentially, what happens is this. If an employee is dismissed, and please bear in mind, dismissal here includes termination with or without notice. The law does not make any distinction. So even if the contract says either party can terminate without assigning any reason whatsoever on three months notice and without assigning any reason whatsoever is in bold underlined words, employee voluntarily agrees to this, they can still go to the industrial court because it is a statutory right. You cannot sign away a statutory right. Now, at the industrial court, the burden of proof is reversed. Although the employee claims they are unfairly dismissed, they do not have to prove anything. 
They can sit down with their arms folded and the burden is on the company to show just cause or excuse for the dismissal. What's just cause or excuse? Essentially reasonable grounds. So if, for example, you're alleging that the employee is guilty of some form of misconduct, the company has to prove, one, that the employee is guilty of that misconduct, and two, that the misconduct is sufficiently serious to order dismissal. If, for example, you're dismissing someone poor performance, again, a three-step test. One, that the shortcomings were brought to the employee's attention. Two, that they were given sufficient time to improve. Three, that they failed to improve. So a fairly common sense approach to most of these cases. Now, if the employer discharges that burden, then the case will be thrown out. However, if the employer is unable to discharge that burden, then the employee is entitled, theoretically, to reinstatement. That means they get their job back, plus back wages from the date of dismissal to the last date of hearing at the industrial court, which is capped at 24 months. So if the case takes 18 months to be heard, it's reinstatement plus 18 months. If the case takes 24 months to be heard, reinstatement plus 24 months. If the case takes 30 months to be heard, reinstatement plus 24 months. The clock stops at 24. Now, I said theoretically reinstatement because in practice, the industrial court very rarely orders reinstatement. You can imagine things have become fairly acrimonious between the employee and the employer. The employee has been dismissed. He's taken the employer to court. Putting them back together may not really be conducive to industrial harmony. So in more than 90 or 95% of the cases, the court will not order reinstatement. Instead, they order compensation in lieu of reinstatement, which follows a formula of one month per year of service. So as a rule of thumb, if you've got an employee working for you for about 10 years, potential liability is 24 months because we don't know how long the case will take. Let's take a worst case scenario. It's going to take the full 24 months plus an additional 10 months, one month per year of service. So you're looking at potential liability of 34 months, which is fairly phenomenal. Two additional points I should want to highlight, and that is that they are deductions from this amount. Two things the industrial court will take into account. Number one, post-dismissal income. Assuming the employee has managed to find gainful employment in that two years, there is going to be a deduction. However, it is not a dollar-for-dollar deduction. So if the employee found a higher-paying job the very next day, it doesn't mean that you don't have to pay him anything. It just means that there will be a deduction on the post-dismissal income, usually of about 20-30%. So all gainful employment is taken into account, but not on a dollar-for-dollar basis. Second deduction is really for contributory conduct. So say the industrial court says, yes, the employee did something wrong, but no, it wasn't serious enough to warrant dismissal. So it will rule in the employee's favor, but still make a deduction to say, well, he, he did something wrong as well. The other interesting thing about the industrial court is this. It's completely free. There are no filing fees to be paid. Everything is free. And win or lose, there's no cost ordered by the industrial court. So the employee really has nothing to lose by taking an employer to the industrial court. On a worst case scenario for him, even if he loses the case, he just has to pay his lawyer whatever he's agreed to. He does not have to pay one cent to the employer in terms of their legal fees or the expenses they've incurred in defending the case. All the employees do is by the time a case gets to court, hope that the company cannot prove its case and is potentially looking at walking away with a couple of years of salary. Unbelievable. So it's very easy to hire people, very difficult to, uh, to terminate someone. So given yes. that sense, and again, we made it sound at the beginning about how attractive Malaysia is for foreign investment, 
how it's simple to get into the country, how it is easy to hire people, how you can advertise however you want, but yet when it comes time to termination, those tables flip. So if you had to do it on balance, how would you describe the general business climate of Malaysia? Would you say it's more pro-business or more pro-employee in your opinion? I would still say it's pro-business, Peter. And I know that may sound a bit uh, a contradiction of what I've just explained, but if I could add to that, there is a flip side to the coin. And the reason why employment protection is so strong for the individual is that it's relatively weak when it comes to unions. Now, in most jurisdictions, employers are often concerned about the unions because the unions have extreme powers. They can call for strikes, call for industrial actions. In Malaysia, we have a complete opposite situation when it comes to unions. Unions are actually relatively weak. For example, in Malaysia, there is no right to strike. The reason being, the government does not want strikes going on. Strikes are not conducive to the economy. So, for example, in India, you may have, for example, a garbage strike, garbage piling up on the street for weeks because the garbage workers are on strike. Or in the UK, you may have a tube strike because the tube workers are on strike. In Malaysia, as I mentioned, firstly, there's no right to strike at all. And secondly, you cannot strike in any essential service. So, for example, bus drivers, train drivers, anyone engaged in essential service cannot go on strike. They don't have that right. For non-essential industries, there's no right to strike, but the strikes are allowed in limited circumstances. For example, the union has to give 21 days advance notice to the employer that they're going to strike. So there are no lightning strikes. And on top of that, the union has to have a vote on the strike and get a two-thirds majority before going on strike. Furthermore, the law defines any strike as illegal unless it complies with all the requirements of the law. So to summarize, in essential services, no strike at all. In all other industries, you've got all these extremely stringent conditions such as advance notice, secret ballots, all being conducted before you can go on strike. So you can imagine the union actually loses a lot of its power to negotiate. This is the reason why there is this counterbalance. So individual protection, very strong but unions are relatively weak in Malaysia. So when companies come in and do business here, they don't really have to worry about the unions the way they would in other jurisdictions. You don't really have to worry about this lightning strike where the union says, right, 12 noon, everybody put down your tools, walk out. Can't do that in Malaysia. If they do, there is zero protection. And in fact, I did a case for a car company in Malaysia some years ago where the union did exactly that. They threatened industrial action unless the company agreed to their demands on the collective agreement. The company refused. They just told everybody to walk out same day. And we had 300 over employees walking out. So I told my clients, this is an illegal strike. They haven't complied with the requirements. What do you want to do? My clients asked me, what can we do? I said, you can terminate 300 over workers, but how are you going to run your company? And the company said, that's fine. We, we, we can manage. Terminate the 300 workers. We did we then taken to court on the case. We won the 300 cases because the court said, look, it was an illegal strike. You didn't comply with the requirements. Firstly, the court had to examine whether it was a strike. Clearly it was. Second, it looked at the requirements. Were they complied with? Clearly they weren't. The court therefore said there was no protection. The employees no. walked out. And although the employees said, oh, we did it under the auspicious of the union, the union advises to, the court had to say, well, that's between you and your union. Because there was no protection, because it was a legal strike, we can't help you. 
Now, in most other jurisdictions, the court case would have been decided quite differently. But you can see now this counterbalance. On the one hand, you have very strong protection for the individual. But on the other hand, unions are really not a threat in Malaysia the way they would be in other jurisdictions. And particularly, this curtailing of the right to strike is extremely important because strikes do not assist the economy. That is the reason why the government has decided that it's not keen on the idea of striking. Of course, one could argue it's a breach of human rights. It's not protecting, but these are more philosophical arguments rather than legal ones. It's been a fascinating discussion, Vijay. And uh, first, I think we're leaning one way, then I think we're leaning the other way. And you did an excellent job of giving us the well-rounded picture. So if I want to retire, I guess I'll be looking at Malaysia as one of those options for sure. We'll be happy to welcome you under Malaysia, my second home. And if you look at our exchange rate, you'll find that the dollar goes extremely far in Malaysia. I will keep that in mind. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We really enjoyed it. It's a pleasure, Peter. Have a great day. You as well. If you'd like to connect with Vijayan, you can find his bio by clicking on his name in the description of this podcast. Also visit ela.law to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content from our online library, or use the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. Also check the Google Play Store or the Apple Store for the new Employment Law Alliance mobile app. Have all the power of the ELA in the palm of your hand. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks so much for listening.